Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Will you stand with me? We're going to <coughs> read from God's Word in chapter 14 as I as you make your way to your feet, let me thank the, the precautions committee that's been working in our church and caring for us for the last year. I have not felt the need for them more, more greatly than I have in the last couple of weeks when I myself came down with COVID. And I'm really grateful for the work of that committee and their care for us. And I want to thank you personally, uh, men, for, for having taken on this responsibility and for the influence you've had for good in our life by it. All right, Matthew 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. Tetrarch means <coughs> ruler of a fourth of a kingdom or of a fourth of some area. Heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. So much so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. He sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. She brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it, and they went and reported to Jesus. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, it is your word. It is your world. It is your people. And we see here such contrast, such golden holiness, and such evil and I pray, Father, that your word may speak to us and that we may, be, we may be listening to it faithfully this morning, Father. I pray that you will allow it to have power by your spirit, to bring conviction and to cause us to repent and to follow the way of John and Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are looking at a passage which as much as any passage in Scripture, and all Scripture is in one way or another typological. It doesn't speak to one little incident in time, but it speaks to vast, huge truths that are timeless. This is a typological passage to its core. It speaks of things that are universal across space, across time, from the beginning of the world to the end of the world, but I think beyond, from prior to the inauguration of this creation till after it is destroyed, these truths will exist, and it is within 
the world and its time as well from beginning to end and from, from place to place. It's, it's universal. Years ago, my father and mother, younger brother and I flew on a missionary airplane into the, the jungles of Colombia, very near the Amazon, where we met, this is 1972 or three, we met it with the members of a, of a, a tribe that lived in a maloca, a longhouse, buried their dead around the center, had fires in the corners, the maloca was probably the size of this room, and uh, dogs running around it, earth floor, big center pole where they buried the dead around. Outside, thatched roof and, and brightly colored herb paintings on the outside. And uh, everyone in the, in the tribe that we had flown into, a grass airstrip across the valley, everyone in this tribe was dressed, well, mi minimally. They, they were, they looked like you'd expect if you flew into a tribe in, uh, 500 years ago in the middle of the Amazon. And we had flown in and we had not gone with the missionary to meet the tribe yet. Um, they had no electricity. They had nothing. It was, it, was, it was back in time. And, uh, and the missionary said, let's wait. I think the, the chief of the tribe will want to come across and, and say hello. Not a huge tribe, 50 people maybe. So we waited at this airstrip, and sure enough, the, the chief came across to this hut where the missionary would stay when he'd go there, and he came across to meet us. Probably a 50-year-old man, and uh, my father was there. He was wearing a Colombian shirt. The chief came, and all he had on were whitey tighties. That's all he had on. He squatted there. He talked with us. After he left, my father said, it's amazing, he said, but that man carries himself in the same way that a, a chairman of a board on Wall Street carries himself. He's a leader, and he knows it, and everyone else knows it. And leadership, my dad said, it's, it's a constant. It's not a local thing. Leadership is constant. Power is constant. It's across every society. It doesn't matter how you're dressed. You're a leader or you're not. This is true. And we see this in our passage this morning. We see two types of leadership and a third that towers above the two. The two are absolutely typical. They are typical in ways that we don't want to admit. They are typically male and female. They are not, uh, leadership is not a, a sex-neutral uh, attribute. It is as sexual as anything in life. There is male leadership. There is female leadership. They approach things in different ways. They accomplish their goals in vastly different methodologies and mechanisms. And we see it here. We see a male leader. We see a female leader. And we see a third type of leadership that rises and transcends either of those, despite these being in themselves transcendent examples of male and female accomplishment and power. Now the desire for leadership and power, the desire to control is universal. You grew up dreaming of power, dreaming of the day that you would have greater power, dreaming of the way you would exercise your power. 
If you're a little girl, you might have had a princess wand. If you're a boy, you carried a lightsaber. Those were totems of your desire for power. They spoke of something that was going on in your heart, a desire for control. Whether it was magical, whether it was gained as you grew older through accomplishment, your desire was to control and to exercise your force on this world. You dreamt if you were young, and if you are young today, and I speak most of all to the young this morning, let me tell you, it's pretty hopeless speaking to those who are older. I speak to the young about power. I speak to you about how you will lead because you're fresh, you're moldable. If you're young today, you want power, you want recognition, you want to fight and gain victories. Whether you're male or female, you want it. You want it in different ways. You go about achieving it in a different manner, but you desire control. Your desire for control and your desire for power came to you with birth. Within days, you as a baby were seeking to manipulate your parents by your cries and your bites. You were struggling for a control. And that struggle for a control over your environment and those who were a part of it that commenced at birth does not end until death. Now, not everyone achieves hyperpower. Not everyone seeks it. No one, not everyone has the, the opportunity to become a king or a princess or a leader of the world. But everyone seeks sufficient authority and strength to establish their autonomy. And for many, not merely autonomy, because autonomy does not exist, but control. The goal is a modicum, at least, of control so that I can control my life. Some point along the way in the pursuit of this control and power, this pursuit of personal autonomy and authority, there is a separation in methodology. Divergence that is most clearly seen in the differing ways of seeking control and power that develop between young men and young women, boys and girls. The boundaries can be blurred, but they are distinct, and there is no way that any cognizant, sentient, thinking human being can say there these, existence, these differences do not exist. They are written in the DNA by the hand of God, and the scriptures do not shy away from describing them. Now, <coughs> of course, there are boys who act like girls, and there are girls who act like boys, but they are generally at the far end of the spectrum of either sex, and I, we don't make apologies for God's truth on the basis of uh, the, the very seldom exception to that truth. Even those exceptions are more true than they know. There is among boys, generally, a pursuit of power that is achieved simply through domination. Your two-year-old boy wants a toy. He goes, there's a boy who has it. He grabs it out of the hand of the boy who has it. He wants it. He grabs it. He takes it. His will roams freely. He is happy to let his will roam. He sees something there, and he goes there. And then he thinks over here, and he goes here, and he grabs, and he takes. He wants, he grabs, he lets his will roam freely. What he wants, he takes. He feels right in asserting and claiming whatever his will can gain him. If he can get it, he did it. Fine. It's what he wants. 
So, of course, a very different approach from young girls whose approach to gaining their desires to power as, as it develops in them does not so much reflect a raw assertion of a dominating physical or mental will as it is the gaining of power through manipulation. Your three-year-old daughter stands and she wants the toy that your two-year-old son has, but she doesn't grab it from his hand. She cries and looks at you and cries and looks back at the toy and she has little tears coming down her cheek. She looks back and forth between the offender who is in possession of the toy and you, her father. She doesn't run and grab it physically. Her desire for power, her methodology of gaining her, her way, works through more silken cords than the rough grabbing of a brother. In our passage this morning, we see three forms of power at play. And I ask you, which of these three are you committed to? Which of these three do you believe is the one that gets what you want? Which of these three is your method? Now, the death of John the Baptist, which Matthew relates in these verses, is not found in chronological order at the point at which it's told here in Matthew, because these verses are retrospective. John has been dead for some time, and the story of his death enters the picture here because Jesus is come working miracles, causing Herod, who hears of these miraculous deeds being done far to the north into the wilderness to be, to be mystified as to who could be doing them. Who is doing these miracles? Herod is desperate to know. Fear of John the Baptist is lurking in Herod's heart, and as only a guilty man would, he decides these miracles have to be the work of John the Baptist, come back from the dead. He's hearing of them, he's fearing them, and he's deciding it's John the Baptist. He's come back from the dead. Now this Herod, a man named Herod Antipas, the Herod who presided over the death of John and Jesus, this is one of nine sons of Herod the Great. This, this Herod, Herod Antipas, received his tetrarchate from his father, Herod the Great, in Herod the Great's will. A will that was ratified in Rome by Caesar Augustus. In that will, Herod the Great ordered his kingdom divided between three of his living sons. Herod Antipas, this Herod. Herod Archelaus, who received Judea proper, Idumea, and Samaria, and was alive when Jesus' father came back from, from Egypt Joseph learned that Herod Archelaus was reigning in Jerusalem, and so the Bible says he went north to Nazareth to escape Herod Archelaus. Ironically, he took his infant son out from under Herod Archelaus, who only reigned there a few years before, before the Romans took his rule away from him and, and, and ruled directly, and that's why Pilate at the end is a, a Roman who is over Jerusalem in the center of Israel. Uh, but Joseph took Jesus to the north under the reign of Antipas, because Antipas ruled Galilee. Herod, <coughs> Herod Philip uh, was also given another son, a third son, was given the Golan Heights, 
Syria and northeast of there, Herod Philip. Now, there was another Herod Philip who didn't receive anything, who was happy to stay at home, and he's more concerned here with this story than the Herod Philip who was a tetrarch to the north. Um, Herod the Great had numerous sons and numerous wives and at least nine sons, a number of daughters. His three oldest sons, Herod the Great's three oldest sons, were executed by their father for suspected treason. All three right before his death, in the years just before his death, leading Caesar Augustus, who had been a longtime benefactor of Herod the Great, to joke in Rome, it's better to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because Herod, he knew, did not kill pigs, but he knew that Herod killed his sons. Four younger sons survived the father, at least several others that we don't have much historical record of, perhaps as well, even younger. Three of them sought the throne from Rome, went to Rome to receive the throne, saying, give it all to me at the death of their father, one of whom, Herod Philip, having been passed over by his father in his will, was content to live as a private citizen in Rome. So there are four sons of Herod there. Three of them are claiming a position. One is saying, I don't need anything. Herod Antipas, Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip were the three sons who sought the throne. Herod Antipas and Archelaus were sons of Herod by a Samaritan woman named Malthus. Philip was son of Herod by Cleopatra of Jerusalem. The Herodian clan was lustful. Many married group of individuals and incest was not at all uncommon in their line. At the death of Herod the Great, Antipas, this Herod, Archelaus, Philip, go to Rome. They seek their father's entire kingdom. Augustus, however, divides Herod the Great's kingdom between three, basically in accord with Herod's will. Archelaus received the center of Judea. He soon had it taken away, and it was placed under direct Roman rule about 7 AD. He disappears from the picture. Philip the Tetrarch rules over the Golan in Syria and to the north and west of, or north and east of there for decades. The fourth brother, Herod II, also known as Herod Philip, this, I know it's the same name as the one who goes to the northeast, stayed a private citizen in Rome. He did not receive any of the kingdom, continued living in Rome with his young wife, whose name happened to be Herodias. Herodias was the daughter of one of the executed sons of Herod the Great. One of the executed sons, Herod the Great, gave Herodias, his granddaughter, to his son, her half-uncle, Herod Philip, as his young wife. And they lived in Rome. Now, Herod Philip in Rome didn't have a great deal of ambition, and his wife did. And so at some point in his travels to Rome, Herod Antipas, our Herod, met and became enchanted by his half-brother's wife, Herodias, a woman who was also his half-niece because it was his brother's, his half-brother's daughter. Smitten by her, Herod Antipas divorced the wife that he had already married and had children by, who was the daughter of an Arabian king, setting up war that later went on between him and it was eventually his undoing, because he rejected the daughter of this king from the south and the east, in the land of the Nabataeans and, and beyond into Arabia. He divorced her, 
and he took up and consorted with this young woman, Herodias. He convinced her to leave her husband because he had ambition and her husband did not. And to come to Galilee with him together with her daughter by that first husband, whose name scripture does not tell us, but Josephus tells us, was Salome. This illicit relationship between Herod Antipas and his brother's wife, Herodias, who was also his own niece, is the relationship that lies at the heart of our passage, which John the Baptist had opposed. Herod is thus, and I'm now speaking in general terms of Herod and all men, a man of dominance. He, a consummate man of dominance. I was reading of a Halloween producer this past week who lives like Herod. Throws things at people, throws things through windows, gets angry, breaks monitors over people's heads. He screams at those who offend him. He fires people constantly, hits people, domineering, a fear-inducing tidal wave of male ego. What he lusts for, he takes. He lives a life that is domineering and dominated by his own desires and his lusts. It is what domineers through the power by which he domineers, it is also what dominates him. He is dominated by his lusts. He seeks them. He goes after them. He is a man, and he goes for what he wants, and he gains it with a minimum of blowback until recently. Now, there are warring desires between our lobes of our brain. All of us, all of us men, all of us women, there are certain desires and then there are countervailing desires and there are these and that and there's a certain back and forth and a balancing act that takes place. This is Herod. He's animalistic. He wants, he goes, yet he's sly. He is not without cunning in his raw lusts. He understands the dangers of an unbridled authoritarianism. And within the realm of his desires, which he really doesn't want hindered, he seeks to operate with a precision that will grant him his lusts, his dominance, with a minimum of blowback. Paramount within the warring desires, within the cerebral cortex of this Herodian brain, is a need to remain in good standing with the Caesars. Because all blessings in the lives of the Herods flow from appeasing the greater king, Caesar, in Rome. That is the ur-commitment of Herod. All blessings flow from Caesar. Second to that foundational commitment to appeasing the Caesars is a calculating fear in this brain, in this cortex of the people he rules. He knows their ability to turn on their leaders. And while he is not craven in front of his subjects as Tetrarch, as he is in front of, of Caesar, he understands, nevertheless, that granted too great a license, his lusts have the capacity to end his rule by turning his people against him. So he is a calculating, powerful, semi-paranoid man, a man whose lusts are the dominant force in his life, and thus the controlling force in his nation, and yet a man in whose reptilian brain there remains a cold nugget of fear that produces in his actions a greater caution and calculation 
than would be true if he were, say, Caesar, and not accountable to anyone rather than merely Herod. And in his crafty, calculating brain, Herod fears certain people. Chief among the people he has feared is this man, John the Baptist, whom the scripture tells us was a preacher of righteousness and a prophet of repentance throughout the area that Herod ruled. A mighty force of divine authority, a man who spoke without concern against Herod and Herod's mortal enemies. And his mortal enemies were the Pharisees. This man spoke against them both. He spoke against the Pharisees who despised Herod for his non-Jewish heritage and his lustful sins. He preached against Herod and the Pharisees condemning both. And our passage makes clear that John in particular called Herod to repent of his relationship to this woman Herodias. In verse 4 we read, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. John is preaching to Herod and he is saying, and the, con, the, <clears throat> the implication of the Greek is that he was saying it over and over, it is not lawful for you to have her. It is not right for you to have her. And he's coming up against the dominance of this man. And he's saying, it is not right. It is not lawful. You are committing adultery and you are in the midst of incest. It's wrong. The word Matthew uses here, the imperfect had been telling him, it signifies ongoing confrontation. He's saying this thing, and he keeps on saying. He's like a metronome. He can be counted on to hit the Pharisees. He can be counted on to hit the Herodians. He's hitting them both. Interestingly, the, the Gospel of Mark tells us that Herod had a perverse admiration for John. And after having thrown him in prison, he would bring him out and listen to him because he, he was struck by his power. Yet we also read here in Matthew that Herod wanted to kill John. And we can well imagine that both things are true. He wants him done. He wants him gone. But he also, in his, in his cunning brain, understands power. And he sees John and he understands that John has power. He understands there's power. And he's, he's mesmerized by it. He's transfixed. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it infringing upon him. But he stands there. He's a man. He knows power. He sees John. He says, well, there's power. He doesn't want to kill him. He doesn't want to kill him because the people hold him to be a prophet. So this paragon here of lustful dominance, of the will to power of man, a man who... Truth be told, many of you would say, this is what I'd love to be able to be. I would love to live unhindered. I'd love to have as few constraints on my life as that man. I'd love it. To grab the woman, to do the thing, to live like a king. I'd love it. This paragon, this, this great example of lustful dominance who does what he wants, takes what he wants, lives as he pleases, is nevertheless hindered from complete freedom and following his lust by these many considerations and fears. 
and not least among the considerations and fears that are at war within this man and within you, even though you may be going after this man, is the work that we see in Herod in this passage of his own conscience. We think this man an amoral beast, a man without compunction of conscience, but it's not so. Herod's fearful wondering whether this is John the Baptist returned from the dead when he hears of Jesus' miracles. His fear that John has returned is an indication that he has a conscience. He still fears God. He still knows truth. He still is subject to the weight of guilt. There is no escape from guilt within. And this is true. Young men, you may achieve everything you desire, but the weight of guilt, the cost of your achievement, will be deeper and richer and fouler in your life with every success you gain. And this is Herod. He still fears God. He's still subject to guilt. There's no escaping the guilt within. He can rage. He can kill. He can rape. But in his heart, the truth of God is not deniable. And so he fears, and he fears God. He fears God. He fears the effect of his own lustful deeds, and he has no real peace. He's in pursuit of peace, and he never finds it. There is no peace for this man. Now, Herod is a picture of the end of the man of dominance, the man who follows his lust, the worldly man, the dominating power, the man who makes his world and lives in it. And he may sit astride the thrones of the world. His kingdom may appear unimpeachable to those who look on. He may mock God. He may laugh at the people of God. He may kill God's servants with seeming impunity. But inside, this man, like many other men, men of our last century, inside this man who seems to be standing astride the world is dying. Dying. Outwardly, he looks godlike. Inwardly, he has shriveled down to this tiny nugget of fear and desire for control, and he is dying. He knows deep down inside death is coming. The bitterness of death and the loss of all that has accomplished so far grows within him as he ages. Every passing year reveals to the man of dominance that he is like the grass of the field. The wind passes over it and it is no more and its place acknowledges it no longer. So the man of dominance may kill the prophet or the preacher who speaks to him of his sin. The words and the testimonies of the prophet live on in the heart of that man long after the prophet himself is in his grave. This is the power of Herod and the power of every one of you that seeks to domineer and dominate and to be the man who does the thing. It may look unhindered as though nothing can impede its course. But it is, in fact, a life of countless fears, myriad calculations, of running to stay just ahead of the tidal wave of destruction. It is a life of great loneliness and internal darkness. And it is the life of most men today. Not all achieve the greatness in this life that Herod did, but many are exactly the same being and creature inside, dying inside, warped. 
having gotten what they want, but having found it unsatisfying. Rejecting God, but knowing that there's an accounting ahead. Many of us aspire to be Herod. Many of us live in our lesser spheres as though we are monarchs. In our homes, in our businesses, among our neighbors, in our teams. And among us this morning are some who have no greater ambition than to be such a man, to achieve such lustful satisfaction, to lead and act and have in such unhindered fashion. There is a second form of power in our passage, and it appears in the lives of its women. This form of power operates in a very different and a classically feminine manner, yet it is a real form of power, and it is the common pursuit of women, just as the previous is the common pursuit of men. That there can be overlap between the two pursuits is undeniable, but that these two approaches to power are sexually differentiated is absolutely clear to anyone with eyes to see, and it is moreover explicitly taught by the Word of God. Deny that there are these forms, and you're denying the Word of God. We see this approach to power in our passage in Herodias and in her daughter Salome. Herodias hates John the Baptist for his preaching. She is not unaware that in John calling Herod to repent, John is saying things about her in particular that she is an incestuous adulteress. Yet this is a proud woman, a vain woman, paramour, at least of a king if she's not married to him yet, granddaughter of Herod the Great, daughter of a, a famous man, and she will not abide these kinds of insults lightly. But her power is not in her own arm like her husband's. She cannot act directly against John, unlike Herod, who simply does what he wants and then, if necessary, pays the piper afterward. Herodias must work through others to gain her goals. Her way of power is not dominance like Herod's, but manipulation. She must work from the center like a spider amidst her web, feeding the desires of men, trapping them in her silken throne, feeding the lusts of men and of other women to gain her desires. She establishes her throne amidst her amidst her web, and from there, with cords of silk, she operates and extends her will. She's unable to operate directly. She must work from the shadows, deftly pulling her silken cords of manipulation to control here, to control her lover Herod. She can't just do she must entice others to do that which she cannot do on her own. And her methodology in this pursuit of her will and her pursuit of power is as classic and timeless as Herod's own. And it is as present in our women as Herod's is among our men. The young women of this church, if they have not embraced the godly path of power, are seeking to be Herodias, to manipulate to sit enshrined on a throne at the center of a world where they reach out by 
through others' hands by silken cords to draw others into their web, their intrigue. We've seen it time after time in the life of this church. And it works with women before it works with men because you have to be enthroned by the women before you can start having the power among the men. She knows she can't have John the Baptist killed directly. She can't do it by her own orders. She can't directly approach Herod and say, do it. The reptilian brain of Herod, this brain of self-preservation that wars back and forth, it's not going to allow her to get him to do something that stupid. So she aims lower in as calculating an act of intrigue and murder as any in Scripture, and yet her hands appear to remain clean. It's Herod's birthday. He's throwing a party for his officials and his friends. It's no doubt like the party that Esther's king threw, drunken, men enjoying each other. And when men are enjoying each other, men of power, they are susceptible to other lusts. And at this dinner, this, this celebration of a birthday, as part of the entertainment, doesn't say whether it's before or after dinner, probably after dinner, Herodias' daughter by her first husband, Herod Philip, that private citizen she abandoned in Rome, this young girl, the word says she's fairly young, the word that's used for her, comes into the room and dances for Herod and his guests. It's a mesmerizing performance. The men, they're all greatly pleased. And in an atypical act of lustful folly, probably influenced by drink, not foreseeing where this is going to lead, and that he's being played, Herod promises young Salome a reward for her titillating dancing up to half his kingdom. So we read in verse 8, Having been prompted by her mother, evidently prior to this occasion, prior to her dance, she says to Herod, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And in the drunken, lustful mind of Herod, there's a little ray of light going, oh, oh I didn't think of that. Oh. So this is a culmination, no doubt, of months of strategy. Herodias has baited a trap, a honey trap. The honey in the trap is the sexual allure of this young, still apparently virginal Salome. This daughter who has been trained by the mother to dance for the enjoyment of men. The men are drinking, the girl dances, the alpha wolf, the dominant man, Herod, he likes what he sees a lot. The men are pleased as well, so Herod makes this rash promise, and Herodias, knowing the predilections of her husband or her male paramour, knowing his lustful, boastful nature, is so sure this will happen. She's absolutely prepared her daughter for this moment. When he makes his offer to you, she has said to her daughter, here's what you do. Ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, no doubt, she's warned this girl. Daughter, I tell you, as long as that man lives, your life is in jeopardy. 
Our futures jeopardize. Kings get bored with beauty. John's preaching could just give Herod the cause he needs to move on to another woman and say, yeah, that was wrong. So the mother can convince the daughter, yes, you need this as well because if I'm rejected, so are you. Her position, this young daughter is also threatened. Her affection in her, the affection in Herod's heart for her as well as her mother is threatened by John the Baptist. And so the, the daughter does as her mother bids. Following in a long line of scriptural women, women in the history of scripture, women throughout the history exclusive of scripture, outside of scripture, who prey on male sexual desire by using sexual attractiveness to draw men to do their will, to draw men to go to their own destruction. Proverbs warns about such women. It calls her the adulteress who lures the man to do her bidding, offering him her affection until finally, the Bible says, drunk and running like a stumbling ox, he gives way and goes to his destruction. To him, she is life and love and joy and bliss and happiness. To her, the Proverbs say, that man is nothing more than a loaf of bread. He's her meal. He is played, and he is a fool. We see this over and over and over in and outside of Scripture. Men who cannot withstand their lusts, powerless before scheming and manipulating women as a result. And it's Herod here. In the Old Testament, Samson with Delilah. The sons of Israel with the Moabite women at the plains of Moab. In Genesis, the sons of the gods, the sons of the good line of Seth, having union with the daughters of men, the godless daughters of the wicked line of Cain, which eventually causes God to wipe out all mankind save Noah. It is a common, common story because it is an archetypal approach to power, male and female. This form of power this feminine approach to control is as well known and well drawn in all of our minds and as well understood as the masculine approach of dominance. It is calculating, it is crafty, it is indirect, it uses attraction to draw others into its orbit. Though primarily practiced by women, it is not limited to working with women, or with men, excuse me, I should say. Notice that Herodias must first attract a woman to do her will, her daughter Salome, before she can turn to her object in King Herod. It is a slippery method. It is disguised. It does not lightly reveal its ends, its goals, where it's going. It operates in darkness. It loves misdirection. It is influenced from below, from underneath. It is the classic surreptitious method of the courtesan. The woman of the court who uses her feminine guile to gain what she wants. Wherever sexual attraction is used as a tool, wherever, in marriage or outside, whenever syrupy sexual emotion is the lure in the trap and the woman is operating the trap, whenever a man is acting on the basis of a woman's control over him through his desires, 
you have this up from below form of power and control. Now, let's be clear. There are no victims between Herod and Herodias. They are a matched pair. They both seek their will through their powers, and they get what they want most. Herod, most of all, wants to be seen as decisive, a man of his word, a powerful man, a man who can be taken at his word and does the thing he's got to do. And so, when Salome says she wants the head of John the Baptist, in that reptilian nugget at the center of the brain of this man, he's weighing all these things, and he says, all right. She was kind of cute. John the Baptist has caused me trouble. But I don't want to look weak, so off with his head, bang, bang, bang. All right, we're going to do it. He does exactly what he wants in the end. He made a decision. He stuck to it. He's a man. It's Herodias, but she gets the head of her enemy. And security in her status with Herod. Now there is a potential cost to Herod in giving to the girl and having John put to death. The people aren't going to like it, but it, he's already weighed that. He's rationalized it. It's worth it. He doesn't think it will cost him his kingdom, and he's right. It doesn't. In the same way, Herodias knows that Herod will know that she has played him. She's no fool. She understands as well that his attraction to her daughter, which is now alive, is another strand in her web of control over Herod. It's a dirty deed, but someone had to do it. This problem had to be resolved, and Herodias took it in hand. And she's at least plausibly disconnected from what took place and the outcome of it. It has enhanced her power, so she's pleased. Finally, there is a third form of power on display here in these verses. Now, you may miss it because it, it doesn't appear to be power. At least if you define power as the achievement of your personal will. On that account, if you, if you account it as power, if you get what you want in your nugget brain, in your heart, well, then on initial examination, this power is going to actually look like powerlessness, and this force is going to appear like victimhood. The third approach to power in these verses is, of course, that of John the Baptist, whose power is absolutely divorced from and distinct from Herod's dominance. And as different from Herodias's manipulation as it could possibly be as well. It is not, unlike either of those two, it is not a control or a power that is based in personal desire. It is not. John the Baptist, he's not a man about himself at all. He is a man of truth. His power is the power of truth. We have dominance, we have manipulation, and we have truth. Truth. John, a man of truth. A man who states the truth of God. 
He is explicitly and proudly not a man who is about himself or his own business. He is proud to be nothing so that the one whose way he prepares will be something. Explicitly not about himself, not about his own business, making and staking no claims to personal authority, reflecting no personal will. Remember, he dressed in the simple dress of a prophet, camel's hair shirt, a dirt poor shirt, a simple leather belt. There was nothing soft about John. He came eating locusts and honey, all that nature would offer, not the delicacies of the Herodian banquets. He speaks the truth. No matter the audience, he speaks the truth. If the audience are enemies of Herod, Pharisees, he says to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the judgment to come? He flatters no one, not the Pharisees, not the normal people of Judea who he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, not Herod, nor Herodias, not one person flattered. He is a rock because he is nothing. The man is nothing. He is invincible precisely because he does not fight for himself. He is a supernatural power and a force because he disdains human power, the privileges of man, the pleasures of man, the esteem of men. He is a man whose power is simple and utterly extrinsic to himself outside him. It is not the force of lustful domination. It is not the power of seduction and manipulation. It is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the deserts the highway of our God. His voice is the voice of God. And when God comes, the one whom he serves as forerunner, this man says to his disciples, there he is, the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sins of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. The, the clasp of his sandal I'm not worthy of undoing. Here, he has decreased. The crowds are not at his beck and call, they're following Jesus. He is imprisoned, imprisoned for telling the truth. He continues to speak the word of God to the shame and the resentment of his captors who spin their webs and exert their wills, and they do their thing and they get his death. So the high point in the life of significance of this young woman, Salome, the absolute apex of her life in terms of earthly power comes through her seduction of her stepfather at her mother's behest and her life's crowning glory, crowning achievement, is to gain the death of the dreaded voice of God, John the Baptist. Her lifetime achievement award, her female glory of all time award is carrying the severed head of John the Baptist to her mother. Look at me, mom. Look at me, I'm a woman. And of course, this is the way it always appears. 
that truth and the power of truth is powerless. That those who serve truth are exploited, victims, and impotent. And in our hearts, we believe this. And young men and women, you are tempted by Satan to believe this. That to serve truth, to serve truth is to end like John. Young men and women, this is the path of truth. John the Baptist, his life. Does it have power? I leave it to you to decide. Will you be a king? Powerful, dominant, lustful, grabbing for the gusto, erecting your throne. Will you be a seductress? Known for your charms and your guile, scheming, manipulating, seducing from the center of a web that you spin? Or will you put yourself to the service of truth? Speaking for God. Taking up the power of a voice that is dedicated to the truth and the work and the will of God. Will you fearlessly follow and declare the truth first to your own heart and then to the world? I want to close by reading the words of a hymn that were written in the 1800s that I love. We don't sing it often and there are reasons for our not singing it often. Nevertheless, it expresses certain things that are powerful. It's called Once to Every Man and Nation. And it was written uh, by a man who was an abolitionist and who said, look, we can't continue to kill people and call ourselves the people of God. It could be written by someone who poses abortion today with equal cause, even greater cause. He wrote this hymn, and it says, Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. Once to every man and nation comes the moment to decide. In the strife between truth and falsehood of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, some great decision, offering each one the bloom or the blight the bloom of obedience, the blight of disobedience. And then the choice goes by forever between that darkness and that light. At that time, decide with truth is noble. When we share her wretched crust, before her cause brings fame and profit, and it becomes prosperous to be just. Then it's the brave man who chooses, while the coward stands aside till the multitude makes virtue of the faith they had denied. One day, everyone's going to say, oh, I was on John the Baptist's side. I was with John. But no one was with John at that moment. One day, everyone's going to say, oh, I was with John. They're going to build the tomb of John and say, oh, John. Though the cause of evil prosper, yet the truth alone is strong. And though her portion, truth's portion, be the scaffold, and upon the throne be wrong, Herod, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. This is John the Baptist. He will be revealed one day. He will be revealed. And the world will bow to him. 
including Herodias and Salome and Herod. And John will be seen as the greatest man born of woman that Jesus said that he was. Which form of power will you embrace? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for John the Baptist in this glorious life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you will cleanse us of the desire to gain our will to be about ourselves, to be domineering and manipulating. But Father, make us and our children, the young men and women of this, of this congregation, instruments of truth. Father, for those who are seeking to lead by truth and are being manipulated, for those who don't have the confidence to stand, give the confidence to stand. Give the confidence to see it through to the end. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.